for you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us, not only through your written word, but also in the embodiment of your word, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you purposely created the road to you to not be able to be stumbled upon or somehow discovered by human convention, but that it must be opened up to us. Our spiritual eyes must be opened. The Spirit must be working in us to lead us to that. We thank you for leading us to faith in you and then indwelling us through your Holy Spirit that we may be able to understand your word better and better as we read it each day and apply its instruction to our lives. I pray that your power would go forth through your word today and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, Reader's Digest published and then posted online an article entitled 21 Stupid Warning Labels That Will Make You Feel Like a Genius. Here are a few of my favorites here. Not intended for highway use. Found on a wheelbarrow. I, I don't know how that would work. <laughs> Why that would even need to be put on there. Should not be used for signing checks or any legal documents. Found on Vanishing Inc. I'd like to meet the person who tried to sign that type of document with that. Harmful if swallowed, a fishing hook. So, some of these things you don't think would need these warnings on it, but apparently they do. And here's my personal favorite. Used like regular soap, found on a bar of soap. <laughs> now these things you would never think needed these instructions, right? In fact, we're left scratching our heads and wondering what would warrant the need to put these instructions on these products. Likewise, when we walked into church this morning, we may not have ever given thought to the instruction that Paul gives here in this morning's passage. However, the Corinthians' questions and Paul's responses are our gain. And this morning, uh, we're jumping back into our 1 Corinthians uh, series to wrap up chapter 7. And if you remember, our, our, our passage this morning, I'll go back to here so you can see what it is, so you can look that up. Our, our, uh, our, our passage this morning falls within the greater context of some questions that the Corinthian church had apparently previously written to Paul about in connection with relationships. This is part two. We had part one about a month ago, and we're picking back up with that because Paul took a step back, wrote about some other things, and then is coming back to this. If you remember, in looking at Paul's writing in this letter, we can confidently surmise that there was a previous letter that the Corinthians had sent to Paul, now long lost to time. In it, they asked him several questions about sexual relationships within marriage, about divorce, and about single celibacy. We covered all of Paul's responses to those questions and messages about a month ago. And if you're curious about any one of those topics, all those messages are up on our website and on our podcast. Now we come to Paul's responses to a couple more questions the Corinthians had in connection with human relationships and human sexuality. I know we've had some pretty tough messages in this section, haven't we? We've walked through them together. 
And today we'll be closing out this section in this letter on human sexuality and relationships. So the first point that we come to in our passage is the echo. And if you haven't turned in your Bible yet to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, please do so now. Uh, there should be a, a Bible located in front of you. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible with you today, I want us all to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. The question the Corinthians had for Paul, in addition to what they've already asked him, was in connection with virgins, or those who had no sexual experience, and how they should live their lives as believers in Jesus. In verse 25 of chapter 7, we read, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. What's, inter what's interesting to note here is how Paul starts out this section that he is not reiterating what Jesus had already taught on the subject, but he was giving his counsel. But since Paul was writing under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's referencing here, his words are as authoritative as if Jesus did say them. While Jesus did not specifically, specifically address what Paul is, is advising, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit here, does see room in what, Jesus, uh, in what he says next in what Jesus did say. When questioned about marriage and divorce, Jesus said, Some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That sounds a little familiar with what we've seen Paul write about so far. Let anyone accept this who can. There's room for this. Within the context in which these words were said, Jesus had just finished talking about the importance of the permanence of marriage. But like Paul was reiterating in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, which we've covered already, in a world where the prevailing Jewish belief was that it was a sin to not get married, Jesus was elevating single celibacy to a pedestal right next to marriage in being equally pleasing to God, being an equal possibility, an equal option for you. Marriage... And the sexual relationship in that marriage was given by God, by God as a gift to humankind. Paul had already discussed the importance of sexual relations between a husband and wife in the beginning part of chapter 7. Then, just as Jesus had said in Matthew 19, Paul says, If someone wanted to remain single to be fully devoted to building the kingdom of God, that was just as good of a choice. But, in the same breath, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 9, that if you don't think you have the self-control to remain celibate in that single state, get married. It's as simple as that. When we discussed this previously, I noted that this wasn't Paul acting like this was the only reason for a man and woman to get married, for that would contradict the rest of Scripture that emphasizes the gift and joy of marriage. This is Paul giving one pragmatic reason to get married. Just one pragmatic reason to get married. Up until this point, Paul had not really addressed the question the Corinthians had about those who had no sexual experience and wondering if they should seek to get married or not. Paul kind of touched on it in chapter 7 verse 8, but now he specifically answers their question. In the line of reasoning Paul saw Jesus using, that he also used in answering the other questions, Paul extends that line of reasoning to virgins. 
And before he gets to his answer, Paul reiterates the general principle he's been advocating throughout this whole section. Verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. That, that it sounds very familiar with a lot of things that he, Paul has written up to this point. The state of remaining that Paul refers to here is what he's previously written, exactly what he's already written. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God called you, when you put your faith in Jesus. This is my rule for all the churches. Paul is referring to whatever state one was in when they finally answered the call to put their faith and trust in Jesus, both as their Savior and as their King, and pleasing Him with their lives. That included marital state. If one was single, they should seriously consider whether or not God was calling them to remain that way, to devote themselves to the building of the kingdom of God. If one was married, they shouldn't then seek to be divorced from their spouse simply only because their spouse was an unbeliever at that point. Paul advocated in chapter 7 verse 16 that the believing spouse may eventually win over the unbelieving spouse for Jesus at some point. And that was their best shot. Paul also extended this principle to earthly status as you work your way through chapter 7. That it doesn't matter what your earthly status is, you are seen by Jesus as a child of God. Redeemed and loved. Now he extends this general principle to virgins. I went through all of that review to see that by the time Paul gets to verse 25 and following, Paul has not left this same line of reasoning. It's all within the same context and can't be separated from each other. We shouldn't be surprised then that Paul says that someone was a virgin when they answered God's call to put their faith in Jesus, that they should seriously consider remaining that way for the kingdom of God. I'll get to his further explanation of this in a second. Paul reiterates what he's been saying all this time, which we just reviewed in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, still in keeping with what he's already said, Paul reiterates his further explanation, beginning part of verse 28. But if you marry, and this is important, verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. That's his further explanation. So again, Paul was giving the advice that it may be best for someone to remain a virgin if they were one at the time of conversion. But it's not the hard and fast rule. Paul is breathing life and legitimacy into the single celibate life for the kingdom of God, especially for one who had no experience physically being with someone else. And at the same time, he's not downplaying one or the other. It's a good thing to get married. And it's a good thing to remain single. It's what God is leading you to do. In other words, just as he's remained consistent through this whole section, if you have a past divorce or you're widowed and you were in that state when you answered God's call to faith in Jesus, remain that way, but you should get married if you wouldn't be able to remain celibate. Pragmatic reason, pragmatic rule. Neither one is a sin, no matter what the prevailing Jewish belief at the time was. 
And if you were a virgin when you answered God's call to faith in Jesus, remain that way. But you should get married if you wouldn't be able to remain celibate. Neither one is a sin, no matter what the prevailing Jewish belief was. Again, Paul left it open-ended between a recently converted person and God and what they felt God was leading them to do. Now, why would Paul insist on one who was a virgin at the time of their conversion to remain in that state when he knew that one of the reasons God created marriage was for the husband and wife to lean on each other and support each other through this life? Well, Paul answers that why question next in verses 28 through 31. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. In this context, Paul knew, he knew, he saw it coming. Paul knew that persecution towards the church in Corinth was imminent. It was coming. It was on the horizon. That persecution would be such that nothing that was a part of this world would seem like anything meaningful because the persecution would be that difficult. The persecution would take away most of the earthly happiness one may experience as God's common grace upon humanity, including the happiness of marriage. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 28 that in that time of persecution, the married couple would experience much heartache that Paul is trying to spare those who weren't married at that point from. The impending persecution may include the forceful separation of husband and wife, either by exile, imprisonment, or execution. Paul knew it was coming, and that was one of the reasons he gave this counsel. Another reason was the urgency of the broadcasting of the gospel as the time before the end times was short. And he wanted believers to be as effective for the broadcasting of the gospel as possible. But again, if one wanted to get married, Paul was not trash-talking that decision either. In connection with what he said, ending in verse 31, Paul clarifies his counsel, verses 32 through 34. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband." This is the practical reasoning behind his revelation in the preceding verses, as well as the clarification for this whole section. Jesus had preached the same general principle, that the believer's first and foremost focus must be on the kingdom of God, right? And glorifying God with their lives. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and and live your lives as righteously as you can, and all these things will be added to you. Paul's advocation for the freedom from concern was the concern of what imminent persecution would bring and what that would do to husbands and wives. 
If one was a virgin, single, or widowed, Paul wanted them to be free from this concern and the concern of earthly responsibilities that marriage would bring in order to focus on broadcasting the gospel and building the kingdom of God, especially in the face of scary persecution. In other words, Paul was never out to be a killjoy. He always had solid, practical reasons for his positions, and, there is, and, and this right here is no exception. He refers exactly to this defense in verse 35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a, restrain up, a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. He's up front and clear about the whole reason for all of this, his defense of all of this. Paul only had the Corinthians' best interests at heart to perhaps spare them from heartbreak and to emphasize their focus on the building of the kingdom of God. He further reiterates what he's been saying in tandem with this point the whole time. He both instructed the Corinthians to be as focused as they could be on the work the Lord had for them to do, but not at the expense of falling into the sexual immorality. He had just spent two entire chapters, chapters 5 and 6, rebuking and warning against. If marriage would prevent that sexual immorality as one pragmatic purpose, then those who were virgins, single or widowed, should seek to get married and do the work the Lord had for them in the meantime. So the first point that we had this morning is the echo, and secondly, the extra instruction. We only have two points this morning. The following verses may or may not be in connection to a question the Corinthians posed to Paul, but it's also an extension of everything else he's already said. In the context and in reading them, they feel like additional supplementary instruction on top of everything he's already said that was brought to his mind by the Spirit and what he's previously written. So verses 36 through 38 we read, But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Now this is a, this sounds a little weird when you read it, doesn't it? This is a pretty tough passage to interpret. Your version may say something similar to the New American Standard Bible that I just read that gives the traditional understanding of these verses and seem to imply a father and his unmarried daughter and if he should give her away in marriage or not. Or your version may give the interpretation that this is talking about a man who is engaged to a woman wants to have sexual relations with her and would be deliberating if he should marry her or not based on what Paul has just talked about. You see the difference? The clearest and best explanation of these verses comes from Dr. Michael Van Lanningham, professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He says that these verses do not refer to a father-slash-daughter deliberation and are misinterpreted that way and mistranslated that way and are best interpreted as the man-slash-fiancé deliberation. In not bogging you all down with the details of the rendering of the Greek language, I will simply show you the best 
rendering of how this should read in the English, and I think this should all make sense to us. Here's the, the, the better rendering of this. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly or sexually inappropriately towards his virgin fiance, if he is sexually mature and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his fiancée a virgin, he will do well. So then both he who marries his virgin fiancée does well, and he who does not marry her will do better. That's the better rendering of these verses. That instruction flows smoothly, you can see that, flows smoothly from what Paul has already counseled. He's already talked about those already married at the time of their conversion and those who were previously divorced, widowed, or still single virgins at the time of their conversion. Paul already anticipated the next question. Well, what about those who were betrothed or engaged at the time of their conversion? They don't fit any one of those other labels. So what, what about them? What are they supposed to do with everything you've just said, Paul? And what we just read as the best rendered version of the Greek was Paul's answer to that already anticipated question. If a man was engaged at the time of his conversion, if he truly believed and resolved in his heart and body that he could be celibate the rest of his life and focus on building the kingdom of God, then especially in light of the imminent persecution and end times, he would do well to break off the engagement and focus on that. If, however, he knew there was no way he was going to be able to be celibate the rest of his life, especially because he was already acting physically inappropriately with his fiancée, then he should follow through with getting married. Both were good options, and those deliberating should feel free to pursue either or in following the Lord's leading in their lives. Again, this is in complete agreement with all that Paul has already talked about. Lastly, Paul gives counsel to perhaps one of the most vulnerable groups of people in the ancient world, those who are widowed. He, he writes in verses 39 through 40, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Verse 40 is the last reiteration of Paul's point throughout this whole section on human relationships. If one was widowed at the point of their conversion, they should seriously consider remaining widowed in full devotion to the building of the kingdom of God. Again, this isn't downplaying remarriage, but rather elevating the decision to remain single for the kingdom of God as the same level as seeking remarriage. Those widowed should not feel inferior to anyone else, for they had a special place, had a special position in remaining single if they so chose. We see Paul's heart for those widowed. We know that from all throughout Scripture, that God has a special place in his heart for those who have suddenly found themselves in that position. Through the grief and the mourning, there is still purpose. 
There is still a high calling, whether or not they remarry. There's still a high calling. They can and will be fully utilized by God in this world for his love and message of salvation in Jesus Christ. If those who are widowed wish to remarry for the at least one pragmatic reason already discussed, Paul instructed that they should only seek to remarry someone. Do you notice in verse 39 what that says? who is in the Lord, or someone who has already also placed their faith and trust in the salvific work of Jesus on the cross. As we already discussed in a previous message, this, is pro- this verse right here is probably the strongest teaching in the Bible for those believers who aren't yet married to seek to marry someone who is already also a believer in Jesus. Spouses who are both believers in Jesus have that strongest foundation, the Lord himself. They can truly become one in every way, as Genesis tells us God created a marriage relationship to be. One physically, yes, but also one emotionally, mentally, and most importantly, spiritually. They can remind one another of the promises and truth of God's word, especially in the most heart-wrenching and trying of times. They can grow in their faith together as one through prayer and scripture reading. They can have the most blessing possible on their marriage as they both seek God's will for their family together. That's a truly awesome gift. We've seen some pretty straightforward instruction by Paul to the Corinthian church in the area of human relationships throughout this section in 1 Corinthians, haven't we? Paul has not pulled any punches this entire time, and he's been as clear and as biblical as he possibly can be. It's been tough, it's been difficult for us to work through these, but we cannot in any way, deny that he's been as clear as he possibly can be about God's instruction. We've seen how sex was created at the exact same time as marriage to be fully enjoyed as a gift from God between a husband and wife. We've seen how important marriage is to God and its intended permanence as an illustration of Jesus' love and faithfulness to the church. We've seen how a believing spouse staying with an unbelieving spouse and being a good witness for Jesus to them is the best shot that unbelieving spouse has at conversion him or herself. We've seen the gift that marriage is to humanity. At the same time, we've seen the elevating of the single celibate life to the same level as marriage, going against the prevailing Jewish belief of singleness as a sin and that it's equally as pleasing to God. If one is single and celibate and feels they've been equipped to stay that way and answer the high calling of full and complete devotion to the kingdom of God, that's a great and wonderful thing. Live that out as powerfully as God strengthens you. As Paul previously wrote to the Corinthians, our bodies, what we do with them, and who and how we join them to others, 